Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. We've had a number of shows over the last few weeks uh, talking about the threat to liberty from the right. We've we've had too many shows probably on Trump. We've had shows on the NRA and the various other fringe, racist, anti-democratic groups on the right. We haven't had, though, a show about the threat to democracy and and liberty or liberalism from the left. Some people would argue that that's a contradiction in terms. Others would suggest that this threat is in some ways as profound um, as the one from the right. Uh, Brett Stevens is the New York Times columnist, uh, for some a, a notorious columnist, for others a freedom fighter. And he, perhaps with Andrew Sullivan and one or two other people, perhaps even J.K. Rowling, have been uh, taking this fight to the left about liberty. Um, his piece on July 4th in, uh, in, uh, in the New York Times uh, about uh, Orwell, reading Orwell for the 4th of July, trended on Twitter, both in terms of its supporters and opponents, uh, Brett, what's it like to trend on Twitter? Does that warm your heart? You know, to be perfectly honest, uh, until you told me that I had trended on Twitter, I had no idea. Um, I have been off Twitter um, in the way that one is off drugs or drink for the last year. And uh, it's it's kind of uh, pleasant just to be completely uh, unaware of whether I'm trending, present, absent, uh, it's. Um, I mean, I've I've sometimes likened Twitter to uh, cocaine, which is to say, people start doing it because it's popular and because it makes them feel witty, and then as it goes on, it makes them um, unpleasant and paranoid, and by the end, they're out of a job and uh, begging people's forgiveness for things they did on it. So, um, not being on Twitter is is one of the nicer aspects of my life these days. Well, I'm unfortunately still on Twitter or on cocaine, whichever way you want to put it. So I was struck um, a couple of mornings ago when I woke up and found you trending, looked up your article, and people were, some people were outraged, as I said, some people were supportive in, in the sense that you argue in this Reading All Well for the 4th of July piece, that in some ways, the threat to American liberty uh, or liberalism um, is more profound from the left than it is even from Donald Trump. I know you're no supporter of Trump, so this I, I don't want to. I, I don't really want this conversation to degenerate into another Trump rant. But can you explain what you meant in reading all well for the Fourth of July? Well, as I said in the piece, um, as uh, fascistic as uh, some of Trump's or many of Trump's impulses uh, are and they are, uh, he has been um, sort of incompetent in bringing his um, more autocratic tendencies to bear in uh, government. 
Um, he wants Russia to rejoin the G7, but the, the, the rest of the countries won't uh, let him. He wants to uh, end uh, the DACA program for the Dreamers, but the Supreme Court won't uh, let him. He wants to give China a pass on concentration camps, but Congress won't let him. So um, Trump has not been particularly effective in bringing his um, authoritarian tendencies to bear. I don't think the same can be said about the authoritarian tendencies of the left, which is to say they have been highly effective. Many people are losing their jobs. Many people are being silenced. There are uh, whisper networks, never mind among conservatives, but among middle-of-the-road liberals who are afraid to speak their minds on issues that uh, just a couple of years ago wouldn't have raised an eyebrow or certainly would have been uh, acceptable topics of uh, debate and conversation for fear of being called out as racists or bigots or whatever by um, a very militant, very vocal, and very censorious uh, far left. And uh, that's that when, you, when you sort of examine the methods that are being used uh, today um, in terms of this ever more, these ever more radical and unforgiving ideological standards which are being applied ever more uh, punitively, there is a kind of resemblance uh, hard to miss with some of the methods that were uh, familiar to people who experienced or witnessed totalitarianism, the culture of uh, denunciation, the culture of canceling, uh, the rewriting of history, all of that um, comes out of a certain political tradition, which you know ought to be familiar to uh, uh, educated people. And, uh, and the direction it's taking is, is very worrying. And so that's, that was the genesis of the column. You talk um, actually in your, your, your previous piece about uh, cotton, about ideological orthodoxies in America, and I accept that. And I'd like you to talk a little bit more about it. But where I'm slightly um, questioning is your, uh, your argument that many people are losing their jobs. You can always find people who lose their jobs over anything. But is it really many Right. I mean, many means thousands, or certainly hundreds or hundreds or thousands of people losing their jobs in this uh, ideological orthodoxy of the Black Lives Matter America. I mean, I guess, no, not not compared to the number of people who have lost their jobs um, on account of the lockdowns, obviously. But the trend is extremely worrying and the potential there is great. I mean, since you have a British accent, you're familiar with Edmund Burke's reflections on the revolution in France. He wrote that in, I think, 1790, when long before the, uh, the Jacobins took charge and the Committee on Public Safety took charge of the direction of the revolution and the real mass executions began. But he could, he could see where, where things were, were trending, and he foresaw it uh, quite accurately. And when I see um, people losing their jobs because they... Uh, wore the wrong Halloween costume for totally private people or because there was a bad Instagram photo from 16 years ago or because 30 years ago, and this is what happened to a Boeing executive just the other day, they wrote uh, as military officers argument, uh, an article about women in combat roles or because a guy cracks his knuckles 
while driving a car and is denounced for making uh, white supremacist signs, which turned out to be totally untrue, then yeah, I mean, uh, perhaps perhaps I'm, you can quibble with the word many, but the direction is is definitely uh, dismaying. And certainly in my industry, uh, you feel it uh, very keenly um, that people's uh, entire careers are being are are now at risk in a way that would have been unimaginable a couple of years ago. Uh, not only on account of what they might say now, but on account of what they may have said in the past. I think one of the most interesting parts of your of your essay in the Times on Saturday was the argument you're constructing about the kind of loss of nerve, if you like, of the American ruling class, of the institutions that define that ruling class. You break it down into five categories, universities, news media, book publishers, free street, free speech groups, and major philanthropies. And you argue that these powerful institutional, or the traditional institutional defenders of, of liberty, of free speech, they're all losing their nerve. Could you say something about each of those institutions? I'll give you a few examples. Um, uh, one book publisher was on contract to publish Woody Allen's memoir. I think to people of your generation or mine, uh, Woody Allen is a major artistic presence uh, with uh, an interesting history and a controversial history. And at the last minute, they decided not to publish the book because um, of pressure they got from Allen's um, son, uh, Ronan Farrow. So they dropped the book. Um, that to me is, is just a, a staggering loss of nerve uh, by an industry that used to be in the business of publishing books precisely because they were controversial, precisely because they were potentially uh, um, unpopular. Um, universities, uh, the, Cases are, uh, you know, becoming uh, inc increasingly common. I think of one case, I think it was in Indiana, where a medical professor had to um, apologize because a medical test asked um, the question, and I'm, I'm saying this from memory, so the details might be slightly off, but the question was, a patient comes to you and says, I can't breathe, what do you do, right? Uh, and this was deemed to be insensitive, and he was made to uh, made to uh, apologize. That, that sounds like uh, the beginning of a of a Kundera novel, the joke. Well, you know what it reminds me of. Um, if you've ever read Philip Roth's book, The Human Stain, um, this is right. precisely what he is writing about. And that was that book came out in the late nineteen nineties, as I remember. I mean, this is a departure from your question, but it, I'm really struck by the way in which we are living in Philip Roth's America. Um, you know, the, the 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 plot against America is a bit of what you know foresaw the rise of uh, Trump. Um, the human stain foresees the rise of uh, cancel culture. American pastoral foresees this incredible generational divide in its depiction of what happened in a family in, in the 1960s. And um, I Married a Communist, I think, foresees the rise of you know, culture of denunciation. But um, uh, one of my goals is to reread each, my goals for the summer is to reread each of those, uh, each of those novels. So yeah, at any rate, it's happening, I think, across the institutions, and, and the examples are, are, are numerous. 
Um, and and they, they ought to concern us. I mean, I am flabbergasted that the editor of Bon Appetit, whatever, I mean, I never had even heard of this guy, lost his job on account of a 16-year-old Instagram photo, or the editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer, a journalist of great distinction, lost his job on account of a bad headline. Um, this is this is out of um, this is out of uh, a, a time we or a, a, a politics we thought we had put behind us with uh, the end of the 20th century. The, the ideological orthodoxies that you talk about seem to seem to be rooted in people's inability to separate politics from the self. What is driving it in your mind? This this new kind of orthodoxy. Well, I think, I mean, that's a great uh, question, which is to say, you know, we now have a politics in which to have an incorrect opinion doesn't make you mistaken. It makes you evil, right? Uh, And my sense of it is that at least two things uh, are, maybe three um, are uh, uh, behind it. Um, One of them is that a generation has come of age that has no real memory of what totalitarianism and the spirit of totalitarianism, I don't just mean the politics or the structures, but the spirit of totalitarianism is all about. So those of us who remember who Solzhenitsyn uh, was or Sakharov or you know the Bukowski. I mean these themes are alive to us in the way that they simply aren't uh, to my children. I think the second aspect is a real shallowing of our concept of liberalism. And by liberalism, I don't mean you know Nancy Pelosi liberalism. I mean the the liberal spirit, which is uh, discursive, dialectic, tolerant, um, and as you said, is able to distinguish. Uh, between um, uh, an opinion and a moral character, uh, even allowing for the fact that some some opinions do indeed put you uh, you know beyond the moral uh, the moral pale. And I guess the third aspect is probably technological, which is that social media has facilitated the kind of culture of denunciation uh, that you know, previously could only be organized by the organs of state, right? Uh, It was one thing if Pravda and, you know, the Soviet literary organs were denouncing Pasternak, um, but it's it's another, that's, that was something only a state could do. But now anyone with a reasonably large Twitter following can accomplish similar goals. So I think it's this conflation of um, historical forgetfulness uh, a failure to create a pedagogy of liberalism and new means of mass communication that facilitate um, or embolden our worst instincts as people have, have come together very suddenly to produce this new kind of um, world in which we live. So what are we going to do about it? Uh, your, your piece, Reading Orwell for the 4th of July, you, were, of course, were rereading Orwell. God knows how many times you've read him. Uh, I've read most of his work, of course, the famous ones. But the, the, the essay that you cited, you described as a little jewel from 1946, the prevention of literature, I hadn't read. So, of course, I, I did indeed read Orwell on the 4th of July. And I found a really good quote in this, which I think summarizes 
the situation and perhaps the challenge, but also the opportunity. Orwell wrote, a society becomes totalitarian when its structures become uh, flagrantly artificial. That is when its ruling class has lost its function, but succeeds in clinging to power by force or fraud. Is the problem, Brett, the American ruling class, does it need to reinvent itself? Because all the institutions that you talk about in a kind of Gramscian sense are the organs of the ruling class. Is that the problem here or am I being a little Marxist? Well, I don't know. I mean, that's a, again, it's, a, it's, a, it's, an intriguing, uh, it's an intriguing question. I mean, my, my basic thesis is that we had a ruling class that uh, lost its nerve that's one argument that I make explicitly. You know, the people who told you uh, a week ago they would defend free speech to, you know, to till till the very till their dying breath are suddenly finding excuses why free speech in this or that instance isn't isn't just isn't the hill they're gonna they're going to die on. I think another aspect is that there has become, and this is hard, you know, this is not an original observation here. There is such a growing distance between the moral perceptions of the ruling class and the moral perceptions of uh, so much of uh, the rest of America. I mean, I I read. Um, I mean, I thought this this came out quite starkly during the coronavirus lockdowns, where you had people who for whom the reality of um, sudden economic distress of having to stand uh, at, at, in line at, at food banks or losing their jobs or having to pull their children out of school uh, um, and and scrounge for scrounge for change, for whom that experience was totally um, beyond their their world because they had knowledge based jobs that easily permitted remote working. Um, I wrote a column about this maybe five or six weeks ago, in which I said that the great divide in American society is between the remote and the exposed. And by the remote, I meant people who could work remotely and often live remotely because they had a second home, they had somewhere else to go. Um, and those who had didn't have those options. And that's a ruling class that has become deeply disconnected from uh, the country um, over which it presumes to make moral judgments. Not only disconnected, but also hypocritical in, in refusing to acknowledge its own power and responsibility. Isn't that fair? Well, that's especially so when people tell you how very important it is to be mindful that so many Americans are, as the statistic went, $400 away from total economic destruction uh, or insolvency, uh, and that was a common line, say, a year ago, and then suddenly became absolutely fanatic on the point that the only acceptable risk when it came to the coronavirus was zero risk. I mean, before I wrote this latest column, which I gather uh, became uh, controversial, um, I wrote another column, I don't know, in April or late April, I think, in which I said that the rest of America shouldn't have to live by New York rules because the effects of coronavirus were so much greater in the New York metropolitan area than the rest of the country. And people's heads exploded over that. 
Um, and again, I, 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 I had trouble understanding how it is that the same liberals who purport to claim, you know, to speak for the interests of the working class and of people who are struggling to get by became uh, so uh, nonchalant about the struggles of that same working class, uh, basically for the sake of their own sense of, uh, of uh, health and security. Can there be a new liberalism for the 21st century, Brett? Or, as some people might argue, do, and including perhaps you, do we need to just reread Orwell, reread Burke, reread Mill? Look, I'm a great, I'm a University of Chicago graduate, so I'm a great believer in rereading these people. I'm, you know, um, I, I don't think that liberalism, at least its core spirit, needs um, reinvention. I, I do think we need to find ways to bring these ideas uh, to more vivid life uh, than we have maybe uh, uh, so far. I mean, one of the problems that we now have is a media landscape in which the sort of virtues of uh, deep conversation, serious res but respectful debate, um, kind of that a, a probing intelligence and at the same time a humane spirit, you sort of look in vain for... Um, for any of that uh, in most of most of the media today. And I wonder why that gap hasn't been uh, that hasn't been filled, um, because I think there would be uh, potentially an interesting market for something like that. Um, we need to have civic education in schools again, something that isn't happening or when it does happen, tends to happen in in uh, the wrong way. You know, Hamilton, the, the musical production, was a great example of how you can bring a historical figure to, to vividly to life in a popularly accessible way that really revolutionizes people's understanding of what happened in 1776 and again in uh, 1787. Um, but this is all about uh, essentially... Um, tending to uh, the old tree um, rather than uh, chopping it down and, and, and trying to plant something new. Finally, uh, Brett, we, we always do this in these interviews, uh, given that everyone's still locked up, stuck at home in, in the coronavirus crisis, what should people be reading in July of 2020? Uh, you suggest Orwell's little jewel of an essay, The Prevention of Literature, which I strongly suggest people read. I, I read it and I, I found it fascinating. Uh, is there other Orwell stuff people should be reading or what other books? Yeah, I mean, look, Orwell is always worth reading, um, although I have to admit I've never read The Road to Wigan Pier. Um, maybe I'll, I'll have to read that this summer. Yeah, that's a great book. There are, there are, um, there are, in 1946, he wrote four terrific essays in addition to the prevention of literature. He wrote a little essay called Why I Write. Um, he wrote uh, another one called In Front of One's Nose. And the great one was Politics in the English Language. And if someone spent a morning reading those four essays, particularly the last one, they'd come out better. I'm a great fan of Czeslo Miloš's uh, book, uh, The Captive Mind which really captures the sort of mental pathways by which people come to accept uh, despotism. Um, 
And I guess, you know, getting on the theme of the collapse of liberal institutions or the capitulation of liberal institutions, I've always loved uh, uh, Max Frisch's play, uh, The Arsonists, um, which is, uh, can be read in one sitting, uh, you know, it's, I don't know, a 45-minute, hour-long play, but is incredibly psychologically astute in explaining how it is that um, anti-liberal philosophies or behavior um, is able um, or are able to um, undermine and literally destroy liberal-minded people. Um, And and it's a parable for how the Nazis took over in the 30s and then again how the Soviets, the communists took over in Central Europe in the 1940s. But I read it not so long ago and I found it just wonderfully relevant. Um, one of these days, hopefully I'll read, I'll read happier literature, but it doesn't seem to be in touch with the times. Well, I hope you'll go back to Orwell's Road to uh, Wigan Pier because it seems to uh, represent, if you like, a left Orwell. And I'd be curious as your, your response to it in our age of increasing inequality and poverty. And perhaps you'll come back on the show sometime to discuss. I'd be delighted. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Keen On, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.